Um, well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be bringing you the Word of God this morning, even in these unusual circumstances. Um, the last three, four Sundays, uh, John has been uh, telling us about uh, the directions and the mission and the vision of, of our church. Uh, but if you cast your mind back five weeks, we were in a series on Luke's Gospel. And the last one that we that, that we had was uh, Matt brought us the uh, uh, from chapter 4 of Luke from verse 14 to 30 where Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth and, and the people loved him the, the people of Nazareth loved him now you see you see if you if you if you'd like to open your Bibles and follow me through this this that would be a big help so we're in Luke chapter 4 and you'll see that that in the uh, in verse 22, that all of the town spoke well of him. They thought he, were great. he was great. They were amazed at his teaching and his gracious words. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? How can this be? At least that's how it started off. But then he, uh, he told them some true words. And he said that just because you are Abraham's descendants doesn't mean that you are God's children. And he reminded them of the widow of Zarephath in Elijah's time, who was not a, a descendant of Israel, but God had looked after her. And, and Naaman the Syrian, whom, whom Elisha healed from leprosy, also very much a Gentile, not a descendant of Israel. No, no lepers were healed but, from Israel, but Naaman the Syrian was. Now that didn't go down so well. And if you look down to verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious and they tried to kill him. So that was his visit to his hometown. Started well, didn't end well. Today we're looking at his visit to the town of Capernaum. Um, I've got a commentary on Luke's Gospel that was published in 1974, Leon Morris's. And uh, he said that we don't even know where the town of Capernaum is. That's how it stood in 1974. And I said that to, uh, to Matt last week, and he said, well, I've been there. And, uh, and then Anita and Morris both been there as well. So apparently there's been some, some pretty good archaeology in the meantime, because now we know where Capernaum is. It's on the north east, uh, northwest coast of the Lake, of Lake Galilee. And Matt was telling me that you can visit the actual synagogue where Jesus visited in this reading, uh, although the, the original one isn't there, the, the foundations of it and the bottom parts of the wall are still there and the new, newer synagogue, which is still 1,800 years old or something, has been built on top of the old one. So it's very much a, a place that we can relate to and just up the street, because it's only a small town, is Peter's mother-in-law's house and that's still there as well. And that's been known from the very earliest days, apparently, of the, of the Christian church. But here in Capernaum, they, they didn't know Jesus, they didn't know his family, and they also were amazed at his teaching because it had authority. That is, he was the author. That's where the word comes from. Uh, in Jesus' time, as now, uh, the, the tradition of the preaching of the rabbis was that they would use the works of others. And so they would say things like, Rabbi Eliezer said this, and uh, Rabbi Ezra said that. Uh, and even today, when uh, you would have heard 
John and Matt and me, uh, refer to, to a statement of, of Spurgeon or Calvin or, or Luther. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's good, it's good to build on the, on the good stuff that's gone before us because they were, they were great teachers and it's, you know, it's good to use it. But Jesus is unique in the history of preaching because he had authority to say, this is how it is, because he was the one who made it. Uh, he could say, the Pharisees tell you this or that, the teachers of the law tell you this or that, but they are wrong, and this is how it is. He was unique in the history of the world, and he told his disciples that many prophets and righteous men had longed to hear the things that they were hearing and to see the things that they were seeing. And they did not see it and they did not hear it. But the disciples did. We, uh, we can see with the eye of faith, we can see with our mind's eye because we have the descriptions that have been left to us in the Gospels of the things Jesus did. And more importantly, we have his words recorded. So we can hear the things that the disciples heard. And even after... 2,000 years, those words still resonate with authority and truth. And, we can, and, and even unbelievers who read the Bible recognise that. And they say, this man is a great teacher or a great moral teacher without even recognising who he really was. But let us now, um, with our mind's eye, and in some way that relates to what we're doing here with the, the uh, streaming of this this sermon, we have to. I have to imagine, as I'm standing here with my mind's eye, that you are actually listening and watching. I hope you are. Um, so let, let us, with our mind's eye, try and see what the disciples saw and hear what they heard that day in Capernaum. First of all, in the synagogue, as he goes into the synagogue, there's a man possessed by an evil spirit. What does that mean? What made this man different? How do we know when someone is possessed by an evil spirit? We, we kind of think we know. Uh, some of the gospel accounts give us descriptions of people possessed by the spirit. We think of the man from the Gerasenes who was so strong that he could break chains. Uh, the, the child of the, uh, who would keep throwing himself in the fire. Um, so they, they're, kind of, but they're kind of descriptions of, of symptoms of, of different types of of demon possession. So we must be careful not to jump to conclusions about what is and what isn't. And because of the, that difficulty, I think my opinion is that uh, demon possession is a spiritually discerned thing. In fact, uh, Paul more or less teaches that in 1 Corinthians 12, that this is a gift of the spirit to know what is and what isn't. It's not something that, that a doctor or other secular people can discern. Um, I also think that with the rise of Christianity in the West in the last 2,000 years that largely demon possession has been driven out. However, now are different times um, and people are looking for answers in all the wrong places. They're altering their minds with drugs and things like that. And therefore I think we can expect that, we should expect that such things may resurge as, as they have, uh, have always been common in, in other parts of the world. So, this man 
in Capernaum, though, was possessed by an evil spirit. He was possessed. The, 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 the evil spirit, the demon, owned him and controlled him. It, it controlled him so that he did things that he would not normally do and he said things that he would not normally say. What a terrible state for a man to be in. And, and since this man was in the synagogue, I think we can discern from that the standard of the, of the uh, preaching or the teaching in that particular place of God. The fact that this demon was not scared, was not afraid to be in the synagogue says to me that there was a lack of authority in that place, a lack of godly authority. The evil spirit was apparently completely unconcerned about being there. But effectively, this man who had been possessed was dead. Uh, he was just a physical shell of a body that was a convenient place for, a, for a, an evil, unclean demon to come and live, knowing that one day he would take this, this wretched man's soul to hell forever. But then along comes the kingdom of God and the authority of God, the power of God in the form of a man. And straight away the demon knows that he's in trouble. Aha! He yells out. Ah! Who, what do you want with us? Why does he say us? I'm not sure. Does he mean me and the man? Or, or are there more than one of him? Or is he talking about all the demons who are, who are around about? Perhaps possibly that one, I think. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That statement, the Holy One of God, is actually only used one other place in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, where Peter where makes his confession of who Jesus is. So this demon, who's seen none of the things that Peter's seen, knows who Jesus is. In some respects, this demon had great faith. He certainly knew who Jesus was, and he believed it. But then James tells us that even the demons believe, and they shudder. And the Apostle Paul said, If I have faith enough to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. That's the state of this demon. Be quiet and come out of him. Just that simple command. And it's all over for the demon. It shrieks and throws the man down and comes out. And Satan's claim on this poor man's soul has been completely annulled. What a glorious occasion it must have been for this man. He was, in an instant, and having done absolutely nothing at all to deserve it, been transferred from a bleak and, and hopeless future with nothing to look forward to at all except eternal misery. But now, suddenly, everything is different. Everything is different. He has a future and a hope. And now he's in God's kingdom where there is love and forgiveness and hope and joy in the presence of God. It seems like this always reminds me of that song we sing, the, the Grace Alone one. You have raised me up so high above my station. Because in a sense, this man with the demon was really no different to us. We may not be possessed by a demon, but there are not 
three states for us there are not being possessed by a demon as one being sort of not possessed by a demon but not following christ as another and then following christ there isn't three there's only two we either follow christ or we don't and so even though this wretched man had a horrible life his eternal position was no different to us before we believe now it is easy to overlook those few words right at the start of today's reading uh, he went down to Capernaum a town in Galilee on the Sabbath began to teach the people so this stuff was all happening on the Sabbath day the repossessing of the demon possessed man by God uh, happened on the Sabbath uh, and although it's not specifically mentioned here Jesus is all is, this is the beginning of him building up the, the wrath and the ire of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees because casting out demons or any sort of healing was just verboten on the Sabbath so Jesus was laying the, the ground for a, a walk that would lead him to the cross and we we note that if we turn down to uh, to verse 40 it says when the sun was setting the people brought to Jesus others to be healed so the people knew this they knew that there was something uh, that the Pharisees the teachers of the law the synagogue rulers wouldn't like about this healing on the Sabbath so they waited till after sunset which was the end of the Sabbath day now in Capernaum as well, they went to the house of uh, uh, Peter's or Simon Peter's mother-in-law and she was ill with a high fever, very relevant to us now, isn't it? Because in our time of Panadol and aspirin and antibiotics, we, we've tended to lose uh, sight of how serious an illness having a fever was. I can remember from my own childhood uh, people my age would remember also our parents being very concerned that that we kept warm in winter and we were all mum was always making sure we were properly dressed if we went outside when it was cold because they were afraid that we might catch a fever my great-grandfather uh, also called John Cook died on the way to Yorktown in the back of a dray in July in 1891 from a fever he had a fever he was 31 years old We've forgotten how serious such things were. But, but Jesus comes along and he rebuked the fever. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? He rebuked the fever. It's like he was, it's like he said to the fever, how dare you even be in my presence? How dare you be here? And immediately the fever left. Get out now. We can kind of just imagine what would happen in our own town if Jesus visited now with such demonstrations of the kingdom of God. And people with relatives in the nursing home who are, who are, who are about to die and they'd be rushing up there and with their wheelchairs and bringing them down to be, to be healed. Um, and, and this is kind of what happened with Jesus, isn't it? The people saw and they thought, wow. This is something, this we've never seen this before. For the first time, they would have hope. But, but in the end, 
Jesus knows that even if he went around and healed everyone, they were still going to die. And so he tells them, I, I can't stay here. That's not what I've come for. I've come to preach the good news and so therefore I must go to other places to tell them the good news. I didn't come to heal these light and momentary troubles. I've come to tell people that death has been defeated. The kingdom of God is here. And so that is our model too. The, the church's mission is not primarily to heal the sick or to feed the hungry or to cast out demons. Uh, because people who are, who are physically well and, and well fed and free of demon possession can go to hell just as well as anybody else. People have been miraculously healed and come to God, confessed their sins, been baptised, and then as their life goes on in well-being and prosperity, they fall away. Well, to me, this account of Jesus' visit to Capernaum is... I was thinking about how it would be, we must all try to put ourselves in the place of the disciples and what would it be like to be there, to see these things happening. I, th I think God in his grace helps us to see that. And it seemed to me it's like, like this, this man who is also God coming into this town with a kind of a, a circle of grace and light surrounding him so that demons and sickness flee before him. And that was showing us, it was giving us a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is like with that great day when we're by the, the river, the eternal river and the trees, of, the, the, the trees of life growing on either side with the leaves for the healing of the nations and there are no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain. That's what he, what he showed us. Well, I can't preach today without mentioning the coronavirus. COVID-19 is, I think, a stark reminder to us that things are not the way they're meant to be on this world, in this world. Because I think a lot of the time uh, we think that this is pretty good, this place. It is good. I like most of a lot of the time. I like living here. People are good to me generally. Um, I have, we have a pretty good life in this place, we have plenty of food, but suddenly it all seems very fragile, doesn't it? And it could all be taken away. And I think that's the value of things like this. We, we suddenly realise, even those who, who hoarded up enough food for months on end, the months are going to come to an end, and what then? So when disasters like this happen, they remind us, that this world is, is not heaven and it's never going to be. And it draws us closer to God. It should draw us closer to God, to cry out to him, to say, Jesus, come back. We pray that all the time, thy kingdom come, which means Jesus, come back. But the more I pray that, the more I sense God saying to me, not yet, there are too many who haven't believed. There are too many. Well, may the God of peace 
who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. May he equip us with everything good for doing his work. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.